Hello and welcome to another episode of the Myland Institute podcast. Today we are really pleased to be able to welcome Sally Jimson, who is the author of a Fabian Society pamphlet called Building Bridges, Lessons from Bassett Law for the Country. We're really pleased to be able to welcome Sally uh, because her pamphlet is part of a wider discussion among anyone interested in the Labour Party on how precisely the party can haul itself back from the drubbing it received at the 2019 election, and particularly in those seats that have come to be uh, seen as part of the so-called Red Wall that fell to the Conservatives in 2019. And uh, to some extent, we're already looking a little bit vulnerable if you look uh, a little bit more closely at the figures back in 2017. We're also really pleased to be able to welcome Sally because she has a fascinating backstory, which hopefully uh, we can get into. She was briefly the candidate for Bassett Law under Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, but that candidacy was, uh, as I say, short-lived, and uh, that allows us to address some of the issues about power and control in the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. So welcome, Sally. Hi. I thought we could uh, start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your political and maybe your work uh, experience before you became uh, the Bassett Law candidate in, in 2019. And then we'll talk a little bit about Bassett Law and the, the candidate experience itself. Where did you start in politics? So I started in politics in 2002. I came in because I thought that the Labour Party was doing a really good job in power. We'd been living in Berlin and we came back in 2000. And in 2002, I, for the first time, joined the Labour Party and got involved and then stood as a candidate, as a, as a Labour Council candidate in Gospel Oak in Camden. And I was told then that that was a really safe seat and I would definitely win it. Um, and it was. It had never, ever been anything but Labour before. And um, in 2006, Camden, for the first time since it had been formed, lost control. Camden Labour lost control of the council. And at the same time, that seat, that council seat in Gospel Oak was lost. Um, so although I polled many more votes or got many more votes than any candidate had got in Gospel Oak for a very long time, me and the, the leader of the council, who was also standing, lost that seat. Um, and the Tories and the Lib Dems um, formed a coalition in Camden for four years. So that was my first experience of electoral politics. And I saw for the first time how you could lose something which you thought was safe, which I was determined, at least in Camden, was never going and happen again. Um, but some of the experiences that I had then mirror, I think, very much what happened in the Red Wall almost 15 years later. And so did you manage to win back that seat in the end? So in the end, I didn't. Well, in the end, I went off actually and stood in South Leicestershire as, a, as in an unwinnable seat, a very safe Tory seat um, in 2010. So didn't contest that seat in 2010, but did contest a very difficult by-election, a uh, council by-election in 2011 in Highgate. And I did win that. And I not only won it, um, but uh, won it against a Green. Everyone thought the Green would win and then won again and topped the poll the next time. 
And I think that was very much about learning from that gospel-like experience, which had been about not being in touch with people, not talking to people, not going around and, and canvassing them, and understanding that this was about understanding, absolutely understanding your community. And it doesn't matter if you don't agree or your community doesn't always agree with you, as long as they know where you stand and you have a relationship with them. That I found was one of the most important things as a counsellor. And they felt that you would stand up for them whatever happened. And so presumably you must have been very disappointed when Labour lost the 2015 uh, election under Ed Miliband. Did you imagine that uh, Jeremy Corbyn would soon become the leader? No, of course nobody did, did they? I don't think. I mean, wasn't he at sort of 100 to 1 when he stood? And lots of people who didn't agree with him at all and didn't agree with his politics lent him their support in order to have a debate within the Labour Party. Another lesson, I think, to be learned there. But no, so nobody thought Jeremy would win, did they? Every Everybody thought that one of the other candidates would would take it. But actually, in retrospect, of course, it's not surprising. Um, Jeremy Corbyn offered a real change um, for Labour and people wanted change in the Labour Party. And that's what he offered. And none of the others did. They offered, you know, continuity. We'll do what Ed Miliband did just a little bit better, seemed to be the offer from all the others. So although I supported um, Yvette Cooper in that, um, in the end, it wasn't surprising. I was rather shocked that Jeremy won, but it wasn't, I think, in retrospect, surprising. And what would you say to people on the left who say that, you know, um, other people in the Labour Party never really gave Jeremy a chance and that, uh, you know, they spent too long trying to get rid of him and, and not enough time attacking the Conservatives. And, and in a way, that explains why Labour did so poorly under Corbyn. I don't think you can blame um, the other side in the Labour Party. Actually, Jeremy Corbyn got power and then he did well in 2017 and in fact then consolidated his power within the Labour Party when they lost um, or when the Labour Party lost so badly in 2019. That really was at Jeremy Corbyn's door. He and um, the unions that supported him, people like Unite and Len McCluskey, really controlled the party by that time. So I absolutely think it's, it's, it, it should be laid at their door that, they, that that form of politics that he represented was not supported in the country. He shook things up a bit. I do think that he, the Labour Party has been forced to rethink. It can't go on as it, it can't say, well, 2000, you know, the Blairite time was the fantastic time and all we need to do is rediscover Blairism again. Um, I think that we very much moved on from that with um, Ed, Ed Miliband and, and then with Jeremy Corbyn. So I think we, you know, Labour has to rethink who we are or continue on from who we are. So I don't think everything was bad about that time at all. But that particular brand of politics was rejected soundly by the electorate. Let's just go um, to Bassett Law and uh, the 2019 election. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, how you became the candidate and then what happened. I really didn't expect, because my politics were not Corbynite, so I really didn't expect to get selected to fight a seat in 2019. I got a call from someone called James Nash, who was a councillor in Bassett Law, and he said that they were desperately looking for someone to stand in Bassett Law. They needed a moderate woman. And would I would I stand? And I said, well, yeah, that's crazy. Uh, why would the hell would you want me to stand there? And he said the Central Party had a candidate that they wanted. Bassett Law local party didn't want that candidate. They drilled out all the local candidates that uh, that, that were credible and they were going to impose 
this candidate from outside that they didn't that that in Bassett law that they didn't want and would I come they but the trouble was because they put so many people up applying for the seat they didn't have enough women and so they'd had to reopen the selection process so I went up and met them and I really got on with everyone in Bassett I really got on with the local party and I really got on with the councillors there and um, I persuaded them to um, to back me and particularly actually Josie Potts who ran the Manton estate which was the old mining village the old pet village and and Josie is a amazing sort of 72 year old councillor who knows everybody and everything and sort of run you know commands about a thousand at least a thousand votes if not more it was very important to get on with her and no one who didn't know locally thought that this woman from London would get on with Josie but of course she and I hit it off terribly well they all organized for me to get selected and and I got put on the shortlist the NEC who'd come up from London to uh, to run the selection so that they could control it. And this was very much about actually um, union control, unite control over some of those northern and midland seats. And as, as always, they put sort of two duds. So they put me and another woman on. And I then got selected and they were absolutely furious that their candidate didn't get selected. A week later, um, had come up with a whole load of what turned out to be completely spurious complaints and put me through a process, a sort of kangaroo court kind of process and said I wasn't suitable to be the candidate and deselected me in the teeth of opposition from the local party. They thought they could win, they were going to win Bassett Law and they decided they wanted their candidate and they wanted a, their candidate who would support Corbyn and who would support their politics and um, they were determined to have him and so they rammed it through. It seems extraordinary in, in hindsight that uh, a party that is committed supposedly to you know local democracy and, and, and devolving power you know down to CLPs would be able to do that to a local Labour Party. I find it extraordinary. I mean, all parties in politics try to get their people into, or their favoured people into seats. The easiest way to do it, of course, is by manipulating the shortlist. But normally the rules of the game is that if you screw it up and you don't get your person in, you let it through. And, you know, I've been a Labour councillor in Camden for eight years. I was, you know, being sort of senior in my sort of party in Camden. Um, and all the sort of allegations had all sort of happened in meetings where there were where there were sort of 50 or 60 people, sort of other witnesses present, all of which had sent in to this um, process that was set up, had sent in affidavits um, saying that I wasn't, you know, my chair of my local party, the secretaries, the uh, secretary of my branches, everybody who knew me in Cameron had all sent in and saying these, these allegations are completely wrong. But they just... The, the party century was so determined to get rid of me. In the end, you know, parties have the right to choose what candidates they want to stand in a general election. But it was extraordinary to ride roughshod in quite such a public way. I mean, that had been happening in a lot of other places and a lot of other people hadn't spoken out. But I don't like being bullied. And I was bloody determined I wasn't going to be bullied. And I, if it, I was, that was, it was going to be in the full public glare. Now, the consequences of that for for the Labour Party, one could argue, um, were pretty um, damaging. Um, you actually outline the figures in your pamphlet. Um, you say Labour didn't just lose Bassett Law. The constituency returned a Conservative MP, Brendan Clark-Smith, with the biggest swing in the country to the Conservatives from being a Labour-held seat just two years before with a majority of 4,852 in 2017, it has now become a very safe Tory seat with the current MP there enjoying a majority of 14,032 votes. The decline of almost a quarter in Labour's vote share was the greatest experience by the party in any constituency 
at the 2019 election. So in other words, as you say, in December 2019, Bassett Law broke all the wrong records. And that takes us on to your your pamphlet and the, the arguments within your pamphlet about A, why Labour lost, and then B, what Labour can do about that situation. So if we take a look at both the the local level and the national level, what would you say were the main reasons that that Labour blew it in seats like Bassett Law in 2019? The tragedy of Bassett Law was it had John Mann, who'd been a a popular MP, but it had also done well in the district election. So and had a functioning Labour Party. And I think that was why people were so angry in Bassett Law, because they trusted their local politicians and they saw London, and there's a real distrust of London in in the Midlands and, and in these seats. They saw London literally come in and sweep away the councillors that they trusted. That was the big betrayal, I think. Um, And that's why they were so angry and why they were absolutely determined not to vote Labour, a lot of them. I mean, I think we would have lost the seat anyway, because, as you say, there was this had been this decline in the Midlands and and in the North had been happening for a long time. I don't think um, had I stood, I would have necessarily won the seat at all. Um, But I don't think we would have lost it to such a great degree. Um, but the other thing is that in a lot of other seats, the Labour Party had been declining for a long time. The Labour Party, you know, infrastructure didn't didn't exist very much. A lot of councils had gone to the independents. That whole area had been being lost for a very long time. And we kind of assumed, I mean, Deborah Mattinson's interesting about this because she'd never been asked to ask people in the East Midlands their views in these Red Wall seats, their views about anything until after 2019 because they'd somehow assumed that they would always vote Labour come what may. It's interesting because it's an argument that's most often made now on the Corbynite left in some ways, that it was Brexit that won the election for the for the Conservatives in 2019. I mean, does what you say indicate a degree of agreement with that analysis? People really hated that Corbynite politics, though. When I would knock on the doors and talk to people, they would say how much they couldn't bear Corbyn. A lot of them had served in the armed forces and that they felt rightly or wrongly that he had been ambivalent, at least, at the very least, about the IRA and their terrorism and ambivalent about um, Middle Eastern terrorists. They and their families in Bassett Law, when I knocked on the doors, had been, you know, serving members of the armed forces. And that was really important. And actually, local Labour people in Bassett Law were running the British Legion and running all those institutions like that, they really distrusted Corbyn and they really distrusted his style of politics. And I think some of that goes back to the 1980s and those divisions in the minor strike. I do think there was an element of Brexit, but I think there was a real distrust. They didn't see Corbyn as, as prime minister and there was a real distrust of his kind of politics. And it was those two things together that were decisive. Stepping back a little, sometimes people you know characterize you know the debate about what you know has caused labor's problem and uh, in some ways you know what still gives it a problem as something to do with a a, a kind of cultural question uh, and others 
um, push back against that and say, no, it's the economy, stupid. I mean, where do you do you stand on that? Is it either or? Is it either culture or the economy? Or, or do they interact with each other in a way? So people in Bassett Law felt that no one had listened to them. The Tories hadn't listened to them. Um, London particularly hadn't listened to them. No one had taken them seriously. Their living standards in comparison with cities are much lower. They're not incredibly poor in the same way as, you know, bits of the kind of deprivation that you find in inner cities. That is cultural. That's feeling not part of the history of Britain anymore in one sense. But on the other hand, I feel that it, that it, of course, it's economic. It's feeling that you, you're, you haven't done particularly well. You've stayed, if you've stayed behind in, in these middles, you haven't done particularly well economically. If your children have wanted to do well, they've had to go to the cities. Um, and you're worried about your children, you're worried about your children going to the cities. And you're also worried about your children who stayed with you, that they'll do worse than you. So, well, the older generation at the moment worries about their kids doing worse than them. If they're starting from quite a high base, that's fine. But if you're starting from a, a much lower base, you're thinking, God, they're going to do worse than than I have. It's both cultural and, of course, it's it's deeply economic. And also, I think there's a huge un- feeling of unfairness between, you know, feeling that London in particular and cities in general, but London in particular, sort of rate and the southeast have raced ahead, um, and they're a completely different country um, to the country that that they're living in, and that that is somehow deeply, deeply unfair. Mm. And is is that why perhaps the Conservatives, you know, current battle cry of levelling up is potentially anyway going to prove quite effective? I think levelling up is an incredibly kind of reductive idea. It doesn't mean very much to people who live in in Redwall seats or in the north anymore levelling up. Um, But I do think that people feel that the power, both power and money, needs to be distributed to the North and the Midlands in a way that it isn't at the moment. I think people do feel that it needs to be more than levelling up. It needs to be a kind of, it needs to be a story of the whole country um, and not just a story about cities and not just a story about London and South East. And I suppose that's what I'm trying to say in my pamphlet, that we need to be thinking about how places like Bassett Law are part of the story of our country again. That's, for me, what's really interesting about your pamphlet. I mean, you know, you're someone who you know, was briefly the, the candidate for this place, but clearly, you know, you've taken the trouble to to think about some of the problems it faces and think about some of the, you know, solutions to those problems, and you've laid them out um, in, in this pamphlet. Give us a, a, an insight into some of the things that you think might help. I mean, you've talked about, uh, you know, a green industrial economy, you talk about you know a, a new deal for the for the countryside. You talk about connectivity. If you had to kind of give us a, just a few ideas that are contained in this pamphlet, uh, which ones would you would you major on? I think connectivity is probably the kind of theme of this. It, what's happening in the countryside and towns in Britain is happening all over Europe, and it's happening in the US, isn't it? In many places in Europe, and indeed in the US, the places where this is happening are miles away from the cities. They're sort of plain in the US. They're plane rides away several plane rides away mm. in, bizarrely in britain they're not <laughs> they're sort of on the m1 and they're on mm. the a1m you know they're on our sort of big arteries um across the country um at least road arteries and even you know bassett law retford is on the um east coastline mm. um and it's within half an hour you know works up within half an hour of sheffield so these places are <laughs> they aren't miles away they're actually they're on the edges of cities and on the edges of places but they're not miles away and so then the question goes well actually this shouldn't be a huge problem we should be thinking about how do we join those places up 
crypto, how do we create, for instance, a tr- you can't get around Bassett Law unless you've got a car. So that makes, you know, we talk about this place with a lots of community. We talk about Bassett Law and we talk about the Red Wars having this community. But at the same time, it's really atomized. People are driving, you know, you drive from the Morrison's Cafe to the to the pub, to um, someone's home, but you don't really walk into the center of town and sort of stroll around and, and have a coffee there in the way that you do in cities. You tend to drive everywhere, including for your social lives. And, and the buses are awful. Just transport-wise, join a place like this up so it's joined up to, to cities and joined up to each other through having a sort of integrated transport system where everybody is, which is probably democratically locally controlled um, and which fits with the rail system. And then if you say, well, I want people, I want to build a community here. So the government just says we're going to build 10,000 houses in Bassett Law and find a place to build them. It doesn't talk about what the people in those houses might do or how you would integrate them into the community that already exists. Or um, it's just somehow assumed that you can plonk 10,000 houses over there and let people get on with it. Fast broadband isn't necessarily put in. Roads are necessarily even adopted there are no shops you know how do you build places and build community and then how do you put that into the green revolution you know someone like Bassett Law produced energy that powered the country that's what the mines were about they were about energy that powered the country and they all the infrastructure for that including all those connections to the grid are there how do you use the infrastructure that you've got there and how do you plan your communities around that? And how do you then power um, connection both through those communities, but also then back into cities? And how do you encourage people from cities? Because I think we then think about these areas almost as if they're sort of hermetically sealed and no one comes into them and people inevitably leave. How do you then bring people, you know, make these places attractive places that, A, the people who live there feel proud to live there and work there? And B, how do you attract, how do you have an offer which attracts people from cities to come and live there too. And, you know, there are examples all over the world from sort of Gurlitz to Tulsa of um, places trying to encourage young people, particularly people who can work um, remotely, to come and live there. So how do you encourage that? And that is about also having a cultural offer. So this isn't just about economics and it's not just about creating a whole green society. It's also about thinking about what's the cultural offer that goes with that? Because that is also something, if you want it not just to be a place where you've got an aging population and you want young people, you want to tr- you also want to attract young people out of cities. How do you make someone mm. like Bassett an attractive place to come and live? Do you think COVID has um, opened up possibilities in this sense? Or, or do you think in some ways the damage that it may have done is possibly even more serious? And I'm thinking there obviously about town centres, you know, we're hearing a lot about shops closing down, we're hearing about commerce moving on to the internet more, you know, what hope is there really for the regeneration of, of town centres in small towns? In many senses, this makes it all the more urgent. This is what Labour really has to do. And this isn't about recreating towns as they were or as your sort of 50s imagination of these towns are. It's <laughs> yeah, the Ladybird book version, yeah. You know, the Ladybird book version of the yeah. town centre with the butcher and the baker and the candlestick yeah. maker. And now, you know, where is that? It's only in the richest areas of London you find that. Where people have recreated this, it's incredibly expensive and you can't go into two shops without sending 50 quid on a sort of a bit of fish and a bit of meat. 
But I do think we need to look at town centres again. You know, what are they there for? Again, in Bassett Law, a lot of colleges were on the edges of towns. They weren't actually in town centres. So could, you know, one of the things that you need to do if you're going to if you're going to start building these sustainable communities, if you're going to start having greener, using your heat from your mines for green energy, you're going to have to have a much more highly skilled population. You could set up digital campuses. You're going to want to set up colleges where young people can study and have these sort of um, engineering skills, but also sort of skills skills to work in public services like health. Why isn't that part of the centre of a, of a town? And why don't you have sort of cafes and things around that to service that? Why aren't you thinking of could we invest in a cultural offer in town? Because actually, if you want to get these digital workers in from the cities to come and work in areas like this and maybe work on a digital campus that you might build that, you know, you might build outside, you're going to want a big cultural offer. And I think a lot of this is public and private partnerships. This isn't just public money. But instead of building your new house development outside why wouldn't you be thinking about how can we retrofit the town center why can't we have places in the in the center that people might want to live in again exact you know as, as, as the same as sorts of things that have happened in cities so i think it is about reimagining what a town is and where pe- how people want to live and modern technology doesn't mean that you're not going to want to live in a nice place i should say for for anyone listening um you know the the pamphlet itself is packed with all sorts of um interesting ideas along those lines lots of kind of nitty-gritty solutions and and suggestions so um you know i'd urge anyone to to have a look at sally's um fabian pamphlet before we finish sally i mean perhaps i could ask you how you think it's going uh, at the national level for labor i mean what's your view of how keir starmer's doing uh, and, and perhaps, you know, what's your take on what he could and should be doing more of in the future? He's having to deal with the sort of structures, I think, of the Labour Party and do some of that internal Labour Party stuff at the moment, you know, dealing with the anti-Semitism and also sort of rebuilding the structures of the party. So a lot, I think, of what he's been doing, what the party has been doing in the last year has been about that and, and making sure that this is this 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 feels like a, a an opera a functional operation that to, to which which can win elections and then run the country. And then I think COVID has sort of pushed everything out. People um say that he should be opposing more and that he's just supporting what's going on, but actually it's just what the Tories are doing. But actually, I think in a national crisis like this, I'm not sure people really want, they want the comp- some of the competence of the Tory party and they want the, you know, some of the corruption that is going on in the Tory party. They want that highlighted, but they don't want the kind of full-throated opposition that you might see in normal times. I think what Keir has sort of established is that he is somebody, you know, the Labour Party could win in 2024. I think that was that wasn't even established in 20. 2019 that the Labour Party was capable of winning in 2024 um, and in, in the future I think the Labour Party has to we have to in the next two years come up with a real vision um, and look like we can govern the country and we can take over number 10 and go into number 10 and I think that's the work of the next two years is developing a vision for the country and persuading the country that we are a government in waiting. And final question for you then, Sally, after your very bruising experience of um, uh, 2019, would you think about standing as a candidate again? I don't know. We'll see. I want to do the things that I talk about in that pamphlet. I want us as a Labour Party to be doing that. I want us to be building communities and I want us to be redistributing and investing wealth around the country. And that's really important. And I want a green revolution. You know, we can, I want us to live in a sustainable country. I don't think the Tories are capable of doing that ideologically. 
locally. Um, so I think the Labour Party is the only party that can offer that. Well, that, uh, that's a good place to end, a hopeful place to end. Uh, I'd just like to recommend uh, to all our listeners Sally's um, Fabian Society pamphlet. It's called Building Bridges, Lessons from Bassett Law for the Country. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Sally for coming on. I'd also like to thank all of you for listening. Uh, there are plenty of other episodes of the Myland Institute podcast uh, that I think you will enjoy, particularly if you've enjoyed what we've been talking about today. I think the interviews with um, Deborah Mattinson and with Gabriel Pogrand and um, Patrick Maguire would be of interest to you. Uh, if you're interested in uh, the Myland Institute and some of our events, you can go to our website. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and on Instagram. If you enjoyed this podcast and any of the others, please do let your friends uh, know about it and please rate us. Until next time, goodbye.